1: We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You heard her, go subscribe.
1: Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question, where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin.
0: Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Sophie Irwin. Sophie has spent years immersed in the study of historical fiction, from a dissertation on why Georgette Heyer helped win World War II, to time spent in dusty stacks and old tomes doing detailed period research when writing this book. Her love and passion for historical fiction bring a breath of fresh air and a contemporary energy to the genre. Her debut novel is A Lady's Guide to Fortune Hunting, and joining me today to talk about that and so much more is Sophie Irwin. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Sophie.
2: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, I'm excited to dig into all of this because there's a lot of words in that introduction that I want to uh, talk Mm -hmm. about. But before I do, I have to ask you one simple question, which is, Sophie, tell me, where does your story as an author begin?
2: Um, Well, mine begins, and I'm, I'm sure this was true for many of the authors on your podcast, with reading, really. I was a massive reader the whole of my childhood. First of all, with fantasy. Fantasy was the massive love of my life when I was growing up. Loved fantasy. And then... I got into historical fiction when I was about 13. My granny gave me a big stack of old Georgia Hare novels. And I can remember vividly looking at them. And they were these like really fragile, peeling, like loose-leafed books. And I was like, those look really boring. And obviously read them, fell madly in love with historical fiction as the, the best escapism I'd ever really known. And which is sort of a love affair that sort of continued for the rest of my life so far, really. So then I, I mean, read everything historical fiction I could get my hands on. I did my dissertation at university on historical romance and Georgia Hare. And then I hopped across into publishing. And that was my job for about five years. And I was working on the women's fiction team. So I got to do loads, loads of loads with romance, loads of rom-coms, historical fiction, which was brilliant. And then... I guess I'd sort of, I'd written a bit growing up, like I'd love creative writing growing up and it was a huge dream of mine at that stage to be a writer, but I think that I got sort of 16, 17, 18 and really put that to the side as sort of a bit of a pipe dream and cracked on with career, you know, go for it and sort of let the childish sort of dreams go, that's so sad. (laughs) And it wasn't then until 2019 that I had the idea for this book and I started very slowly writing it, sort of to begin with. It was I was trying almost not to scare it away, so I didn't tell anybody. It was a huge secret. And then 2020 lockdown suddenly had much more time because the commute I'd got back this commute time, and I started to write it properly. And then zoom forward, got an agent, got a publishing deal, and here we are.
0: Wow, that's a great story. But you decided—I mean, you were working in, I would say, the industry. Mm, I mean, not yeah. as a writer, but you were working in the publishing industry. Was that your first job after university, or?
2: No, I did. I've done all sorts. Really, I've um, had a job since I was thirteen. So after university, I lived at home for a year. Worked in hospitality, worked in events, earned money to come to London because in the UK, I think it's kind of similar in America where publishing is in London. Really, it's getting better, but it's in London. So I earned money to come to London, and then I my first job in publishing was as a PA to the managing director. So, which was fast paced and exciting and very interesting and stressful, sure. Um, and then I worked my way across into editorial, which is where I wanted to be. Yeah, which was fantastic. I loved it. Editing is sort of, was a dream job for me.
0: What, what was it about historical fiction that really drew you in, you know, when you were younger? What, why? I mean, because, you know, I, I get fantasy, right? Mm. But when you're younger, it's like eh, historical fiction. What was it about it that really spoke to you that really kind of lit a fire inside you?
2: It's interesting that you talk about fantasy there, because actually sometimes I kind of think the appeal of historical fiction is quite close to fantasy. And especially with stuff set in the sort of Regency Georgian period, which is where I sort of my passion lies. Because it's such like a distinctive world, which is different to ours, relatable because, you know, it's still people and humans and we can understand it. But it's so distinct, so different. So has such a distinct visual style as well, which can feel kind of almost fantastical sometimes, even though it actually existed. And I think it's just the appeal of an escapism which is totally different to your current day, I think is so powerful. And especially when the backdrops feel very rich and decadent and you have this like gorgeous texture underlying the whole, all of the plot and structure, which I think it just feels like it has a feeling to me, almost like a texture of historical fiction where you can just dive in and it feels rich and gorgeous in a way that it's just incredibly seductive somehow.
0: Yeah. And, but there's a little bit of pressure though, there too, I imagine, when you're writing it, because you've got to get your facts right. You know, I mean, there is a little fantasy in there, right? But you've got to, Mm. you know, you're painting a picture of a world that did exist. And, you know, even though the events that you might be writing about, you know, may not have happened, the backdrop Mm. has to be realistic. So tell me about the research process and and your feelings about that.
2: Oh, research is like my greatest love and my greatest challenge all in one go because it's so much fun. I loved it and I just read and read and read and read. And I walked around London with like old maps and looking at stuff and seeing what changed. And I read letters and diaries and everything. And that was so much fun. But the challenge of conveying in-depth research lightly so that you can show people, you can build the world, but not not overwhelm them with like a nonfiction book when you're trying to be doing fiction. That was really challenging. And then also you just have to check everything. And it's not even just the big things you have to check about sort of, oh, what do they eat and what clothes do they wear and things like that. It's like, what kind of chair would they sit on? And what was it made of? And, you know, what what kind of pavement quality was there? What were the roads like? It's it's tiny things which actually are quite hard to find out. So that began, was a lengthy process. And actually have to give credit to my editorial team, my editors, my proofreaders, my copy editors who were also really on it about being like, check this, check this, check this, check this. So even if after I'd written it and we were editing it and everything like that, we were still checking stuff and looking for stuff to make sure, as you say, you kind of want to, you need it to be believable because I think the first thing that puts the reader out of the story, that's you haven't
0: done your job properly.
2: Which I'm sure there's still tiny things left in there that I've got wrong and I will get right for the next book, I promise, but (laughs) I try my best.
0: (laughs) Well, what can you tell me about A Lady's Guide to Fortune Hunting? Tell me, you know, what what, yes. what does this story mean to you? What's it about? Why did you think about writing it now?
2: Yes. Okay. So I'll give you my pitch first, which is, so it's a historical rom-com. It's set in 1818 in Regency, England. And my heroine, the main character of the of the book is Kitty Talbot. And she's the eldest of five sisters and her family are hugely in debt. And... In order to save her sisters from certain ruin, she has to get a lot of money. She has to get a lot of money fast. So Kitty heads off to London to try and find herself a rich husband. But it's not as simple as that, or else I wouldn't have written a book about it. So Kitty has first got to learn how to walk, talk, act, speak, everything like an aristocratic young lady. And she sort of has to use every trick, every bit of cleverness, resource she has to get what she wants. And she's absolutely determined to, to do it, to pull it off. And no one, not even the very dashing Lord Radcliffe, is going to stand in her way. So, oh God, it was so much fun to write. I loved it. Historic, I, well, I wanted to write it because I love the genre so much. But one of the, I suppose, gaps or tropes that I was quite interested in is that often in historical fiction, especially, sorry, often in historical romance, and especially sort of like your original, so, you know, Georgia hair time. The heroines are sort of morally pure. They're sort of ethically superior. They're never greedy. They're always super kind and generous. And they're rewarded with like a hero, often rich hero, but they're never after his money. And I remember walking to work one day and I was thinking about sort of how romantic that concept of marriage is as sort of the man as reward for the women's good behaviour. But actually like at the time, they you had this like one high stakes moment to make a good marriage. And if you're a woman of a certain class with no means of supporting yourself otherwise, that was a huge decision. And you had to get it right and you had to do it well because it would dictate everything that came after, not just being both your family. And I was sort of imagining what it would be like to see a slightly more calculated heroine who is very aware of sort of the economics of marriage, of the high financial stakes, and to see her sort of attack it in the same way that modern women attack their careers was sort of how Kitty came to be, and that was the real starting point. Was that sort of idea of what it would be like to see sort of an unashamed heroine? So yeah,
0: that's where it came from. So somebody who's maybe a little bit ahead of her time in that regard,
2: or and just without, or just able, honest about what she's yeah. after. Because you would, you would like, if I was there back then and you had this one moment, you would go after the richest guy. You just would. So it's quite funny when we sort of want to gloss over that. But yeah, if you need money that badly, <laughs> you'd go for it.
0: Yeah. I also kind of laugh a little bit at the notion of like a man being sort of the reward for good behavior. <laughs> you know, it's it's definitely, you know, hopefully an outdated, outdated notion, you know? Yeah. You know, Absolutely. I uh, you know, not to be self-deprecating, a- but I would never want to be somebody's reward for good behavior. Like, I know, I know. like somebody's punishment for bad behavior. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it sounds like, you know, she's she's a bit of a fish out of water. Is she mm. coming from her background? Did you have fun with that? I mean, was there was there some comedy in there? Sort of her any kind yeah. of missteps? It
2: was fun. And yeah, I think the brilliant thing about having a character who as you say, is a fish out of water is that you are able to convey the rules and also break them. Because otherwise, there's so many rules around what women could do back then that narratively, it's quite a challenge to get them to do interesting things because they're not allowed to do anything interesting. So that was what was great about Kitty, was that I could sort of have a show of her breaking the rules a little bit and bending things. Yeah, and we did. Yeah, And it was really fun to see her make mistakes. That was always the, my favourite bit to write. It's the friction that sort of arrives yeah. when she gets something wrong. She doesn't know she's got it wrong because she doesn't even know the rule she's broken. So that's
0: really good fun, for sure. Yeah, she sounds like a, f- a fun character. to certainly <laughs> right. You know, you Absolutely. mentioned kind of when you were kind of starting your career, you were putting your, I can't remember if you used the word childish or your, your kind of younger ambitions aside. Mm. Now yeah. you've you've had the chance to sort of not only, I don't want to say indulge them, but kind of feed them. And mm. you found the agent, you know, you've, you've gotten it published. How does that sort of inner child in you feel right now, having kind of accomplished these things?
1: Yeah.
2: I mean, it's all happened so fast so I haven't really had a moment to really appreciate that but yeah it is I guess vindicating hugely yes I weirdly feel a lot of tenderness for that past self who thought that was like something that I was never going to get to have and it's so bizarre looking back at yourself and not knowing the route your life's going to go back down it's quite a bizarre thing yeah I guess that's how I feel it's it's a funny it's a f- so funny that. I really, really firmly didn't think this was in my future and then it sort of happened anyway.
0: Yeah. So,
2: yeah, bizarre.
0: That's what I, that's, I think that's what I love most about your story. You know, I I do believe that we have all these different parts of self inside us, right? We've got our inner Mm. child, our inner teenager, we've got our adult, Mm. we've got our future adult, you know, we just don't know who they are yet. But we have to feed each of those pieces someone, right? We have to feed that inner child sometime. We have to feed that inner teen sometime because they're all still part of us, you know? 100%
2: 100% yeah mm. and I think the thing that I think the thing that stopped me writing which is interesting when you talk about like your inner to that sort of journey we think of it as a very linear journey from child to adult and children are very good at trying things and being open with making mistakes and um, possibly being embarrassed but cracking on anyway and adults generally aren't and that for me was the big thing writing I didn't want to be caught trying at yeah. something I might be bad at so that's why it was sort of put away. But as you say, yeah, you have to sort of try and retain some of that childlike ability to, to try and fail and carry on anyway. Absolutely.
0: So I have three children. They are yeah. they're all the, they're all the same age. They're twenty years old now. We have triplets, and you just kind of looking looking back on their lives, it's really interesting yeah. because there was a time when you know everybody would be over the house. You know, family friends. Yeah. And the kids would, they'd want to do something artistic, right? They'd want to put on a Mm. show. They were always putting on shows for us, right? Or they were drawing and they want to show us their pictures or, you know, just doing something really creative. And there there comes a time in development where that just stops. And it doesn't even feel like it fades away. Like it just stops where they don't want to perform anymore. They feel silly sharing Mm. their artwork. I mean, one of my daughters is such a, a wonderful artist, but she doesn't want to show anybody her work. And yeah. I think that's—I don't know if that's like you know one of the downsides to growing up and maturing, but something happens, mm. like societally, something happens where that there's an off switch. Yeah, and then maybe you find that inner child later in life. I think you certainly did because you you got this book written and published and, and all that good stuff. But I just like to encourage. Yeah, no, the,
2: it's so strange. Yeah. No, I was say you're so right because it's all—it's like suddenly a world where playing and performing is such a huge part of everyday life and then lying in the sand it's not anymore you've got to it's bizarre because we still have that need to play and be playful so where it goes i don't know
0: yeah and maybe we play in different ways as we get older but Mm. i think there's Mm. always that like person inside us that wants to just like go run outside in the rain you know Or, or just like draw a picture or write a story yeah and uh or just do something. I don't know. Yeah, I just encourage. I'd like to encourage everyone who listens to this to just like feed that inner child at some point in time. You know, keep yeah. it, keep that inner child well fed.
2: Exactly, exactly.
0: So there we go. Uh, what's next for you? Are you already working on sort of a follow up to this, or?
2: Yeah, book two. So I'm editing book two at the moment. So it's set in the same world same time period but different characters it follows a woman called eliza who is in a very unhappy marriage of convenience until fortunately her husband dies leaving her rich <laughs> very fortunately rich, yeah. yeah fortunately yeah <laughs> she doesn't kill him but it is fortunate That's right. um, <laughs> leaving her really rich and wondering what happens next sort of the marriage plot is finished before the book starts and then she sort of carries on but I found book two really hard. I don't know, because I know you're an author as well. So mm. and you've written a lot of books. So I'm hoping you're gonna tell me that three, four, five are easier than two.
0: I think so. I think so. My point yeah. of view is especially if you've got a big hit with your first book. And this this is the mm. same with musicians too, right? So bands whose first album is very good, they've got a lot of pressure for that second album mm. to be, you know, as good or if not better. Writers, I think, face the same thing. Mm. And fortunately for me, my second book was far and away better than the first, you know, I I like to, I kind of make fun of that first book. But um, well, the first book that was published, there were a bunch that were not before that one. But no, there's pressure. But I'd say, you know, just kind of be true to yourself and your process and write what yeah. feels good to you. And you know that your editor will have feedback later, you know, you're true. there'll be there'll be time yeah. for that. So just kind of tell the story you want to tell and then the, the rest will kind of work itself out. Well, advice, I think so, yeah. anyway. I think so. But there's yeah, there's a big the learning books. curve. There's a big learning curve with that first. I mean, you mm. know, what is, if you if you had to say, like, what are the big lessons you learned about yourself as you were writing and going through the publishing process for that first book?
2: Yeah, I think the main thing I learned, which is the main thing I think I would want to pass on to people if I was ever in a position to be asked my advice, which is the main challenge for me is getting through the first draft and driving on even though you sort of hate yourself it, because the first draft is so bad and you have to, the trick, for me, I don't think I'm necessarily a particularly good writer, but I think I got through that first bit and people don't often. People can find that too hard and too overwhelming because you're used to reading these amazing books and you think, I, this is so, the gap's so big here. How can I ever possibly be good enough? And the trick I found is just carrying on anyway and then the second draft, you can make it much better. So that was my main challenge of book one, which is what was good about book one is I had a lot of time. So I, you know, whereas this book two suddenly I had a deadline in six months and first draft in, please. So it's quite hard sort of getting through that self-hatred phase at pace was a challenge again. But it helped knowing that I'd gone through it before. And so this was sort of part of the process rather than an actual indication of quality.
0: Yeah. Have you developed or found a community of sort of writers? you know, like yourself, that you interact with, you know, in, you know, where you are, you know, and if so, how important is that community to you?
2: Yeah, it's definitely something I actually want to get more into. I think hopefully now COVID to a degree, the lockdowns are not as frequent, so that it will make that sort of community building much easier because to begin with, I was, you know, locked down and it was, you weren't going to meet anybody. I've met some people on social media and that's been pretty great. And again, it's quite nice to see people struggling and the same things you struggle with and talking about the same parts of the process but it's definitely something I really want to find more of because I think it really helps I'm used to in my old job I had colleagues right yeah and now it's me alone until I hand it over to my editor or my agent and then sort of await feedback so definitely I think it's something that I'm going to try and look to build because I imagine it'd be really helpful and really reassuring to have that kind of yeah support system
0: yeah it's one thing to actually
2: know what it's like
0: yeah because writing can be a solitary process I mean typically Mm. it is right you're creating your your story, pretty much in a vacuum, but to, to have other people to sort of commiserate with, and
1: yes, you know, just to support. Yeah.
0: You know, just writers, I think, are very good at supporting other writers. Mm. You know, there's a hashtag on Instagram. You know, authors supporting authors. That's pretty popular.
2: How oh, is there? Oh, oh, yeah, you that? Oh yeah, gotta up.
0: check that one that out. Authors supporting yeah. authors. It's a good one. Well, I've got some fun questions for us, uh, for you, really, because yeah. um, no one cares what I think. I, <laughs> That's I was not like, true. <laughs> <laughs> I always like to, you know, get to know people, and one way I get mm. to know people is by asking them about pop culture. So one of the things that yeah. I always love to start off with is, did you have any favorite TV shows when you were growing up? What did what did you like to watch, if anything? And I, this is a tricky question for authors because sometimes they say well, I didn't watch much TV, but I'm curious. Did, did you watch any, and what did you watch?
2: Got everything. So I watched. I mean, the, we were really lucky. We had such great BBC dramas. Anything period drama I watched. I used to watch Robin Hood it was a huge thing for me. Superman growing up was great. Doctor Who, big fan of Doctor Who, and then mm. what Sorry, her?
0: I was gonna say the original Doctor Who or the most recent ones that they kind of rebooted so the,
2: yeah, for Chris Eckerson, is it Chris personson, isn't it onwards yeah, but i didn't I didn't watch it. I didn't watch the originals, but I used to love that anything. I was a big fan of Gossip Girl of. Nine o two one o
0: anything with a good like Pacy plot. I was I was into. Oh my gosh! For sure, nine o two one o was so in my wheelhouse because yeah. I was I was the same age as they were in high school. So I think the show picked up their that. junior year in high school, maybe, and that's what that's what I was when I started. You know, I that show came out my junior year. They were juniors, and mm. I followed them through college. I mean, I literally went to college Perfect. with these people. Then we had our first careers together, so it was it was very fun. <laughs> I miss Brandon, you know, he and I were friends uh, and Steve always made me laugh. But that's a great show. That Melrose Place too. I watched Melrose to the bitter end.
2: Oh, I never saw that. No. Great.
0: You got to watch Melrose. I mean, it was the crossed over with 90210 in one or two episodes.
2: Ah, okay, well, yeah. that makes more sense. Sometimes you know when you see a crossover episode, but you don't know it's crossover. So you're yeah. like, "Why are these strange new characters arriving?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: that's right. I think Jake from yeah. Melrose was doing work on Kelly's house or something. Like I can't remember, but uh, Melrose was okay. great trashy TV. It was fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. yeah. It was a huge
2: place for sort of delicious trash, isn't there? Oh god. Stuff I where love you're trash. like, "This is great," and they're giving it to me really easily, and I'm and I love that.
0: I just started watching New Girl with my daughter. I, I, saw, I saw the pilot episode. I was flying on a plane. This goes back to what, 2011? Mm-hmm. I was on a, a flight and they had TV. So I was watching and I laughed. Me and my seatmate, who I had no idea who this person was. We were both <laughs> watching it and we were, we were like idiots on the airplane. We were laughing yeah. so hard. And the other night I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to start watching that show because I was out of shows. I needed to laugh. I didn't want anything heavy. And my daughter and I started watching it. And we just laughed like idiots, like idiots. So funny.
2: So funny. So funny. Oh, God. Yeah. That whole age of TV. Because I think when, what was on it? I thing is, we get things a bit later for the new. So, mm. so we had that a couple, you know, when I was at sort of university. And that's great. Yeah. Love that. And that has got a fantastic slow burn, will they, won't they romance. Yeah. I think it's oh, yeah. The, one of the greats. Yeah.
0: yeah. Totally great. How about a uh, musical artist? Who did you like listening to kind of growing up or even now? Like, who do you like to listen to?
2: Oh, Taylor Swift! Obviously. Oh, sure, absolutely.
0: Uh, yeah. Now, country or pop? Taylor or both?
2: Both. I think the thing is, there's a Taylor for every mood. So you know, yeah. she'll she'll give you something any day of the week. I do love country, so big fan of Dolly Parton. I love Carrie Underwood. Love, yeah, that's fantastic. My favorite band is probably a band called The Cat Empire, which who this Australian band that's fantastic. Love them. But yeah, I think Taylor. I, I was actually on you know Spotify Unwrapped each year gives you mm-hmm. the stats. And I was in the top 2% of Taylor Swift listeners last year, which I am very proud of. (laughs) Thank
0: you. I took my daughter and my son Mm. to see Taylor Swift. And my other daughter would have gone too, but she was on a trip, so she couldn't go. This was, I don't know, like five years ago. And we had terrible seats. Like they were like, like way. well, hold on. The story gets better. Mm. So nosebleed seats. That morning I went on, I looked, I'm like, are there any better seats available? Because sometimes that happens where... You know, people yeah. don't show where they try to sell their tickets. I found four floor seats and I gobbled them up right I sold there. right there. So right on the floor, I gobbled them up. Now, when we got there, like right behind us, there was a big gap between our seats and the next section of seats. It was like a thoroughfare. And we were in between like a B stage and a C stage. So yeah. all of a sudden, Taylor like is on like this, like trapeze. And she goes yeah. to the B stage. We're seeing her. And then next thing I know, like right behind us, there are all these security guards lined up and it's because she was going to walk right behind us to get to the other stage. So we turn around and there she is walking and shaking everyone's hand. And she shook all of our hands and I was filming it. So my daughter and her friend were just like going bananas. Like it was like the Beatles coming into like, you know, whatever, you know, Ed Sullivan or something. Amazing. That was dad that of the year that, for about yeah, 20, for about 25 that's minutes. That's a lot of points. Yeah.
2: 25 minutes. And then the, <laughs> then the effect wear off. So yeah. Yeah. But she's <laughs>
0: she, she's fantastic. She's fantastic.
2: She is fantastic. She is fantastic. Yeah. And I, I think we're getting a bit of a Taylor Renaissance now when everyone realizes, oh yeah, she's actually brilliant.
0: No, oh, she's, she's really nice. a great, great songwriter. And mm. seems to be a good human being too, from what I can yeah, tell. Exactly.
2: Anyway. Exactly. And she's someone who's not afraid to get caught trying. That's what I think. Like, oh, no, is no. It? So she, you know, she tries everything. That's, that's you know, in a child.
0: I think she has to get, you know, caught trying because that's what fuels her creativity. I mean, like a lot of missteps, yeah. you know, fuel her, her songwriting. But I digress. How do you feel <laughs> when you're staring at a blank sheet of paper or computer screen and you need to write something? What emotions do you experience at the blank page?
2: Panic, despair, for sure. Distress. Shame, <laughs> all of the above. Yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs>
0: so what do you do? What do you, how do you deal with it?
2: So uh, if I'm really struggling, I actually just go to pen and paper. And I find that much less daunting than a page because you can kind of you can kind of like transition from like a brainstorm mind map to writing. So it's sort of an easier step, step, step. Early doors, if I'm doing a first draft, I have, I'm very strict. I have a rule I have to do a thousand words a day during that first draft stage. You, i don't edit i don't delete anything they could be a thousand unrelated words but a thousand words so that's sort of weirdly having a moment that really weirdly frees me up sometimes because you can just sort of like bash away and you just like spend a while describing furniture and then you're like oh and actually maybe someone says this and then you suddenly are into dialogue and dialogue for me comes much easier than transitions and descriptions and things yeah. like that so yeah but it is that's it's a horrible feeling when you can't <laughs> get anything down
0: but at least you have a ways of dealing with it. So that's, yeah, that's good. Sure. I like the idea of going to like paper and pencil or pen um, because yeah. there is, there is a different, I don't know if it's a different brain process when mm. you are doing something physically with your hand and you're drawing the letters versus typing them on the keyboard.
2: Yeah, it's something, it's almost like you're tricking your muscles mm. because you're moving and your brain starts to think as well. I think it really, I don't know why. It should be the same, shouldn't it? But it is so different. You're right.
0: Yeah, but it's almost like it's artistic in a way. And I think yeah. that's a way of, I always forget if the right brain is logical and the left brain is artistic, but there's a way of exercising oh, one God. of those sides of the brain just by drawing something, even if you're just doodling in the yeah. margins, that can get your mind going. So
2: yeah, Very I cool. love doodling. Big fan of
0: that. that helps. <laughs> yeah, me too. Like, <laughs> and I, I'm terrible at it, but I have doodles all over everything. Because, kind of, this is obviously your first novel. It's out in the world. What lesson, if any, about publishing do you feel like you learned the hard way? Oh,
2: that's a good question. I think sort of the slight panic of having your book out there and you can't get it back. I didn't, that floored me that I had a bit of panic about that. And sort of seeing people like discussing it, reviewing it without my permission. And You know, I thought I had quite a pretty thick skin and even, you know, the slightest bit of criticism and then you're like, oh my God, how dare you? And, oh, I'm terrible. I'm a worm. I'm awful. So that was the hard bit was actually, I was like, oh, you have to, A, get a thicker skin very fast because people are allowed to discuss your work. Of course they are because they're reading it. That's brilliant. And B, to, you know, protect yourself. So don't go looking at reviews because, you know, I've been really lucky in that. It's So far, everyone's been really go- really nice and gorgeous, but like that you can, I don't know, it's a rabbit hole. You shouldn't go down. You, can't, you sort of have to have an equilibrium of self-worth that doesn't yeah. take too much external stuff in. is sort of, I think what I've learned so far.
0: Yeah, there's, I mean, there's definitely a vulnerability to putting your work mm. out in the world, right? You know, you're yourself up to criticism from everybody. But yeah. the, the way I think, you know, and someone told me this recently talking about reviews is, you know, the reviews yeah. are not for you. You know, they're not for your ego. Yeah. They're for other, they're for other readers. So, and it's, it is tempting though, right? Cause you want that validation. Yes. Like you want to know, yeah. do people like what I'm doing? But I think the fact um, that, yeah. I was, I was going to say the fact that you have an agent who believes in you, an editor who worked hard for you, a publisher who put the book out there, like, there yeah. are people who believe in you and you don't really have to worry about what the reviews say so much. But
2: no, that's true. Yeah. Um, and also there's sort of a masochistic bit that comes in, doesn't it, where you're like, I bet I could find a bad one. And you start like looking <laughs> in like a chaotic, you know, self-destructive mood. That's right. Um, yeah. It's like pulling on a scab.
0: Yeah. You're feeding that inner imposter that's inside you, right? Saying, yeah, I can't possibly exactly. But you are there yeah,
2: someone knows out there that I'm a fake <laughs> and, <will> <laughs> and I will
0: find them. And I will find them and I will love them in a weird way. Um,
2: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Just to wrap up here, if you could go back in time and give advice to your younger self, you know, maybe that, you know, younger Sophie who had dreams Mm. of becoming a writer someday and who, of course, wound up putting those dreams on hold for a while. But what would you tell that younger self, you know, that who is still full of hope and possibility? What would you tell them knowing what you know now?
2: I guess that it's not embarrassing to try. And it's, very, it's natural to start off being bad and then you will get better. And the only way to get better is to try. I think that's what I would,
0: yeah. Yeah, I love Put that. I mean, think about yeah. anything we do in life, right? Learning how to walk, for example, or even learning how to stand up, right? Think about learning how to stand up on your kids. You fall down a lot before you get right. back up, right? But mm-hmm. with ki- or before you can get up on your own two legs, but as kids, they just keep trying, they're persistent. They keep trying. They don't care. Yeah. You know, they don't care if they look stupid just falling on their, you know, later on in life, we feel like we can't, we have to be perfect at everything out of the gate. But, you know, because we have to let, I think this is going back to that inner child, right? Like a lesson from mm. them is, hey, you might look stupid, but just get back up and do it. And writing, yeah, exactly. writing is a muscle, you know, it's, mm. it's a verb, but it's also like a muscle you've got to develop. And the only way to do it is to just keep doing it.
2: Keep doing it. Yeah, Exactly. And that you have to, and you have to wade through that, that bit of, yeah, trying to stand falling, trying to stand falling for ages. And that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uncomfortable though it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, the author, of course, is Sophie Irwin. The book we're talking about is her debut. A Lady's Got a Fortune Hunting. It's been a very fun conversation. Sophie, before I let you go, do you have a website or social media that we can share with the listeners of Uncorking a Story? Sure.
2: So I'm on Instagram at Sophie.erwin and I'm on Twitter at Sophie H Erwin.
0: Sophie H. Irwin. There we go. And I'll be sure to yeah. put all of that in the show notes so people can just look that up easily enough without having to write it down. If you're in your car, don't write it down now. That's not a smart decision. No. Driving. <laughs> Very good. Sophie, this has been a great, fun, insightful conversation. I feel like I feel better about myself after this one. I hope you do too.
2: I know, that's been brilliant. Thank you so much. <laughs>
0: All right, enjoy the rest of your day and good luck with the book.
2: Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.